This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome for those of you joining us here live. Welcome to TJF DCT on Clubhouse. And for those of you who are joining us at a later date, maybe on the replay on Clubhouse or through the decentralized podcast, which is distributed on your favorite podcast platforms. Hello and welcome. We gather here every Friday live, 12 to 1 Eastern time to cover a range of topics related to decentralized research and making trials more accessible. And the topics that we cover each week come from you, the community, our friends in this audience, both live with us and, um, and through the replays and podcasts. So my call, my ask, my request to you is if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks and months ahead, Raise your hand. Let us know. You could do that in the chat here on Clubhouse. You could do that with a message on LinkedIn or Twitter slash X. You could also just drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Whatever your favorite way to reach out, just keep reaching out because that's how we come up with these great topics and bring on friends as guests to help us with these conversations. If you're here in the clubhouse or if you're on the uh, on the podcast platforms, be sure to follow and subscribe and join and whatever the options are for the platform you're using, because that's how you'll stay current and aware if there are updated content or other updates that we're dropping in between our regular cadence. While we do this live on Fridays, it's usually by like Tuesday the following week that that latest episode is available to you on podcast platforms. Well, speaking of topics that are kind of current and uh, and, and timely, um, our topic this week is going to be around M&A mergers and acquisitions and activity in the decentralized trial space. But we'll probably talk about M&A even more broadly around trial tech and clinical research in general along the conversation. Of course, this is a timely one this week. We're broadcasting live on February 2nd of 2024 because earlier this week was the announced acquisition of Science37, a publicly traded uh, DCT uh, tech and service provider. And so I don't know about you, Jane, but my direct messages and texts started lighting up pretty quickly with a lot of questions, feedback, reaction. And so it seemed like a great topic to accelerate into our queue and kind of slip into the cadence this week. Uh, Jane, did you see a lot of inbound questions and, and ideas flying around as well? 
Yeah, Monday started off with a, a bang, so to speak. Um, lots of people were curious. I know I am myself. And I guess this is a good time to say when things are relevant and happen out in the world around us, we just shift the agenda. So it's reflective of what's what's current, what's relevant. This one was something we hadn't planned for, obviously, but we're really delighted that Chunky is with us today to take on this topic. Absolutely. Uh, Chunky, uh, an uh, analyst and leader with the Everest Group, welcome. Thank you for joining us here today. For folks in the audience who haven't had the pleasure, uh, please come on off mute, introduce yourself for folks in the community. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Jane, for having me. Uh, so, hey, everyone, my name is Chunky. I'm a vice president with Everest Group. Uh, we are a research firm headquartered, of, headquartered in Dallas and with presence across US, Europe, as well as Asia Pacific. Uh, in my role, I lead the healthcare and life sciences research uh, at Everest Group. And a big part of that research is our focus on clinical technology, which brings me here. So thanks, Jane. Thanks, Greg. And look forward to this interaction. Absolutely. You know, there's um, I think to, as we as we came out of the uh, uh, out of Q4 in 23 and into the start of this year, there were a lot of different forecasts and expectations about what the market will start to look like. Will there be consolidation? What other types of trends were people expecting related to M&A in the year 2024? I know I had my my views out there. Uh, Chunky, as, as we rolled into the start of this calendar year, what were some of the forecasts and expectations on your mind in terms of how this market may start to shift and look differently over the course of 24? Yeah, so I think when I look at 24, I see that in two distinct, uh, I see two distinct flavors, right? So if you think about, again, where we are coming from, if you think about 2023, and if you look at uh, funding across uh since 2019 it was uh the the lowest funding that we've seen in a year right so at its peak which was around 30 billion came down to uh 10 billion somewhere around 10 billion in 2023 uh and the expectation coming into 2024 was that we expected the first two quarters to uh be a little muted similar to 2023 and we do expect more growth as well as more M&A activity to then start to happen in the second half of 2024. So get, getting into this year, that's the, that's, that was the expectation, or that is still the expectation. So as a naive um, listener, do you segment that forecast into different levels of activity, depending on whether it's buying molecular assets or organizations that build molecular assets compared to say the technology M&A landscape. And, and I'm asking with pure curiosity. Yeah, so the forecasts that I mentioned are more from a technology perspective. So more M&A in technology and technology related services. Uh, I think the view uh, from uh, investing in, let's say, biotechs, I think is also quite similar because, I, again, if you 
even look at the broader industry, not just life sciences or clinical trials, but even if you look at deal trends and funding patterns, uh, they are largely similar across uh, all other industries as well, right? So across all industries, if you look at uh, private equity activity, 2023 was uh, by far the lowest year uh, out of the last, I would say, four years, right? Uh, but again, coming into 2024, uh, we do see more optimism. I think a majority of the investors expect deal activity to increase in the second half of uh, this year. Uh, so, so yeah, I would say that the numbers that I said or that we tracked were more for technology and technology-related services. Uh, but I think the trends across uh, investment in molecules, investment in biotechs, investment in other industries are largely going to be similar. Well, you know, it seems like um, some of the macroeconomic trends right now, you know, we see, um, I was just looking at an analyst report uh, this afternoon that um, it, it's looking like uh, study startups, study starts, continue an upward trend in January has looked very good for new study starts that's been slowly trending upward since October, and that January also saw um, a decent resurgence of biotech uh, funding. Um, as well as the sense that in Q4 overall, the R&D spending from pharma, while it seemed very bumpy and we still see a lot of belt tightening in terms of headcount, it seems the overall spend on R&D hasn't, um, you know, except for a few incremental pockets, has seemed pretty stable. And so hopefully for a lot of the companies in this space, um, there are continuing growth and revenue opportunities but Chunky, I, I feel like the um, the bumpiness out there right now may disproportionately affect those who took some substantial valuations over the last two years, um, because it always feels like there's this rhetoric among the investor crowd that, well, will these companies be able to grow into their valuations? Will their revenue and growth be able to catch up um, before cash starts to um, become harder to access or starts to dry up? Chunky, do you feel like this convergence of some of the companies that had big valuations that have been trying to preserve their cash and stretch out their runways, that, that there's going to become a time in 24 where there's just not enough revenue growth opportunities for them that some of them may may end up being um, assets for sale. Yeah, and I think from an M&A perspective, this is going to be an interesting space. Uh, but I, I would say this, right? Uh, that when you look at this particular event, right? And I know that there are a lot of questions and a lot of skepticism around what to expect, what would happen to some of the other companies which are out there. But I think to start with, one of the things I would say is that I don't think this is uh, I, I don't think this is takes away anything from DCT because when we speak to buyers and when we talk to them about what they expect from their uh, portfolio, what what they expect, uh, one of the things that they most often mention is they expect more investments in decentralized technologies and methodologies. Right, I think, but the question is whether the providers or the actors that we see out there now, whether uh, they would be the ones who grab this share or whether uh, whether that moves. So I think a lot of that would also determine what we expect uh, or what we would see. But 
I, I, I do expect uh, I do expect consolidation to happen, uh, and I don't think that's un, that would be unexpected. Simply because I think the area that we operate in, particularly from a DCT perspective, right? I would say it's still quite new, still quite niche, and whenever you have such scenarios, uh, and combine that with uh, the euphoria that we saw a few years ago in terms of rise of valuations. So I think some of this had to be expected. Now, I think for some of the other companies which are out there, I, uh, I again, in my interactions with them, I do think there's an acknowledgement that uh, fund, or funds may not be as available as they were before. Uh, valuations are definitely not what they used to be before. So what that means for them is, uh, it means a couple of things, right? One is they're looking at ways in which they can uh, they can increase their runway. So in the last year, we've seen, again, a lot of uh, headcount reduction. So a lot of them are trying to become more agile, uh, preserve cash and being able to last longer because as, as I said, right, we do expect market to, we do expect funding activity to pick up. So I think one is, uh making sure that you're agile making sure you increase uh the, uh the time till which you can utilize the existing funds uh, and hope that the next uh cycle of investment like you cash that so i think that is one the other is i do think that there would be an increase in m activity because there are quite a lot of uh companies that are looking for investments uh so i do expect uh and because of how some of these funds are, I do expect there to be more M&A activity in, the, in this year. So, um, Chunky, one, one of the headlines on many people's minds this week is regarding Science37's acquisition. We, we aren't going to share. There, there's some secret um, you know, insight here. Um, things in this regard are just based on what's available in the public domain. But is that an acquisition that surprised you, or is that something that you felt the the writing has been on the wall? I think there were some parts to it, I would say, which were expected, but there were definitely some parts which were surprising. I would say the timing was a little bit of surprise. Uh, I, I would also say that uh, in terms of the who ended up acquiring, I, I think that was also a little bit of a surprise. Uh, I mean, we've been, one of the things we've been also thinking about is we as we expect consolidation right who are who, who would acquiring or who would end up acquiring some of those assets so i think cro is definitely one uh then you have some of the other large clinical companies who don't have uh, or or have recently started building their patient facing capability and i think one of the other areas or one of the other uh i would say interested acquires that we, would, we we saw was actually coming from the healthcare sector, right? Because we're seeing increased focus on remote care. And I think they were also evaluating some, uh, uh, they, they were also evaluating assets in this space, trying to understand how, what capabilities can they uh, take from some of these exist, from of these assets and also use it for uh, serving their target audience, which is healthcare provider. So, uh, but yeah, I would say that the timing as well as uh, I think who ended up acquiring the asset, I think those aspects 
uh, were, were surprising to me. You know, Can I double click from, oh, there? Yeah, for a go moment? ahead, Jane. So, um, CRO acquisitions of this sort of tech has been going on for a while with different impacts. Let's let's be honest. What about pharma? Like actual pharma companies or biotech sponsors acquiring this sort of technology? Do you see that happening? And I realize I'm asking you to do crystal balling here. I, I can give it a shot. I, 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 like I've, when I think about, uh, again, who we've received questions from, right? I, I don't think there's been a lot of questions from pharma companies thinking about evaluating these assets, right? In fact, if you think about what we are seeing now is actually the reverse. If a lot of pharma have, they've built their own internal tech and a lot of them are thinking about, and we've already seen an example, right, where they're thinking about externalizing it. Uh, so, it, yeah, I mean, pharma theoretically as an option, but it, it, at least based on my interactions, that is not that, that, that is not the option that uh, I think a lot of them were looking at. You know, it does feel like pharma is, some pharma are still doing in-house development, say with some AI algorithms, especially just around experimentation. But it is interesting to watch the AZ trend to try to um, to spin out capability. It is an interesting question, Jane, about you know would pharma be uh, on the list for acquisitions? Chunky, I, I think you know as you as you share, you know the that the list for acquirers in this space we do tend to think a lot about incumbents, both the CROs and clinical trial tech companies. Um, and so it is interesting to see more of a healthcare, health tech player make an acquisition like this in this space. Uh, my personal view, I don't think we've seen that CROs have necessarily been able to successfully acquire um, innovative capabilities and maintain and sustain and scale them. I think that's proven difficult with many of the, say, tech acquisitions by CROs in the past. And so maybe this is a, a better outcome here. It's interesting with this particular company, EMED, that I have not followed closely, but seeing that they did pick up Babylon, another highly valued uh, SPAC'd uh, company from uh, from last year uh, that EMED picked them up as a UK-based uh, leader around um, remote access to care. Um, so, yeah, maybe this is a part of the story about the convergence of research and healthcare, and maybe there'll be some more opportunities for growth by kind of living at that intersection as compared with the more traditional roll-up within, say, a CRO. Well, and maybe I'm I, naive again, but are these healthcare entities that are seeking these new capabilities, are they global or are they more um, single or small country footprint entities? That's an interesting question. I think healthcare does tend to be more regional focused. So again, I think the interaction that, uh, that I have had, I think we're more focused on US. So I, I, again, when you look at healthcare, it generally tends to be more regional compared to like pharma or life sciences, which is generally more global. So I expect for, again, a lot of companies like 
uh, let's say similar to EMED, which operate in the healthcare space, I do expect most of them to be focused yeah. around a particular geography. In most cases, it's likely to be North America. Yeah, I, th I thought so. I wasn't sure. And, and that's really interesting to me because the CROs and sponsors tend to be more global. So I'm really curious how that evolves the technology play and how that enables it in global trial settings. Yeah, you know, I feel like in this case, I know Science 37 has done uh, some work XUS, but it, it, it is by and large a, a central meta site business that I, I think was more dense in the U.S., which may align well with EMED, although I know EMED, as we mentioned, had bought Babylon in the U.K., um, which did have a sizable footprint um, over there at one point. You know, I, I also think, Jane Chunky, about, you know, I think there's a lot of reason why people might look at that acquisition and say that this is a story about decentralized trials, that this is a story about the DCT market specifically. Um, but I, I think that's, personally, I see that as being more of you just within a bubble. Um, you know, the, the fact that EMED previously bought Babylon, I think is an important reminder for us that this is a story about hyper-valued companies uh, from, you know, raise significant raises during the pandemic and what happens with them. That's a story that is about Science 37 as much as it's about Babylon, as much as it might be about other health uh, tech players like ShareCare in the months ahead. Um, is this a statement about DCT? Well, in our little bubble, it was the DCT players that did significant raises at high valuation, some of them, during the pandemic. But the headline here to me is not about DCT. It's about all companies, health tech, clinical research tech, other tech that did these substantial valuation raises and other um, aggressive financial moves that just haven't been able to grow into them. If folks aren't familiar with Babylon, uh, this is a company that also did a, a SPAC, if you're not familiar with SPACs, that's SPAC, um, which was a, an interesting kind of uh, reverse merger approach to go in the public markets. Um, Babylon's entry to those public markets was a was a, was a $4.2 billion event when it happened in 2021. Um, and that was in health tech in the UK. And so, you know, again, uh, Chunky, when you see these headlines and see some of the uh, rhetoric, maybe on LinkedIn or in other spaces, do you sense this is about DCT or is this a, a, a more broad story than that? I think it's broader than that. It's a, I don't think this is about DCT. Uh, I, as you mentioned, Craig, I think valuations are definitely a big factor here. Although I would say that uh, while it's not about DCT, it, it is to an extent also about some of the DCT players. Right? And I'll, I'll explain that. I think the point around valuations, I think it's pretty clear. Right? I think the world that we live in today is vastly or has changed rapidly right? from the last few years. The valuations and uh, again, right, there was a lot of different factors going into it. The interest rates, uh, the how investment was flowing in a lot of assets which were focused around uh, or which were focused around uh, 
I would say shelter at home conditions continuing for a longer time. Even if you look at again other tech companies like Zoom, you will see uh, significant fluctuations in stock prices, right? And there would be a lot of others as well. So I think valuations is definitely a big, big part of it. Uh, uh, and I, I say that I don't think DCT is a part of it because I think sponsors still continue to plan on increasing their investments in DCT and continue to have more and more trials which would adopt decentralized uh, methodologies, right? But one thing that I would say is one of the things that we have picked up over the last, uh, during the last DCT peak matrix assessment that we did is we did see an increase in dissatisfaction among sponsors. Uh, and a lot of it was, a, I, I think a lot of it is a result of uh, their expectations not being met, right? So some of it is a function of how fast the expectations are changing from sponsors. But I think some of it is also they felt that uh, they were overpromised, uh, and then a lot of the companies underdelivered. Right. So I think that is the only nuance I would add. Uh, that uh, to the to the point that you made, Craig, Craig, that it's not about DCT. It's definitely about valuations. Uh, but there's also a small factor around uh, the rising dissatisfaction. Uh, that we've seen with sponsors or that uh, that we've noted from sponsors. That makes sense to me, Chunky, but I'm also going to say that is not a new story to me. Absolutely. The dissatisfaction across clinical trial productivity is um, longstanding and legion. <laughs> I guess that's why we're here. We all want to make it better. I, I like how you contextualize that, Chunky, though, because I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot of um, challenge out there with sponsors managing their vendors and partners in this space, whether it's home health solutions, whether it's tech platforms, um, that sentiment that there is overselling going on. I think uh, um, I did a panel or we did a, um, a town hall at the CNS Summit the year before last, and I think it was John Reitz from Thread who put it a, a very succinctly as a call back to sponsors um, that they should stop rewarding those who oversell to them because all they're doing is creating a cycle of incentivizing um, that type of behavior among vendors. His sense was, you know, the vendor who speaks the truth to you that a certain timeline is unfeasible or certain functionality is impractical, the vendor who speaks the truth to you doesn't get the business. And so that's a, a great kind of reminder. And I think you set that up as well in terms of expectations among buyers buyers being well-informed, buyers having access to certain expertise um, so that they can be thoughtful when there's pushback that's happening from a partner um, to heed that rather than to create a, a, a disincentive uh, for that vendor and partner to be honest with you going forward. Um, but, you know, it's also a reminder that you know, I, it's funny, I had one uh, one set of sponsors had shared some feedback with us at one point. Um, we're working with this vendor and they're nowhere as, as good at this as my EDC vendor is with EDC. And we would say, well, how was that EDC vendor a decade ago when they were just getting started? Well, it was miserable. And they were, you know, completely kludgy and unreliable at it then. And so 
once again, it's a reminder back to sponsors. Um, are you expecting your innovative partner to be as slick and tight in their delivery as a vendor you've been working with for a decade? And if so, why would you expect that versus planning, risk mitigating, resourcing, and having different expectations for a newer partner? Now you could say, well, they're being they're overselling that competency and and that is a problem. And 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 if that's happening, that's an absolute truth that needs to be addressed. But I think that a good relationship and good delivery here requires uh, adaptation and honesty on all sides. Um, it's a great call out though, because it will get in the way of, of progress for sure. Jane? I was just gonna double click there for a second, Craig, and bring up a comment that our friend, Michelle Shogren, who is the CEO of Innovate in What You Do, made in a circle within DTRA community a couple of months ago. And she likened some of this um, challenge with adoption and dissatisfaction a lot to what she called first date syndrome. And I think you just said it in a different way. Like it does take some time to learn these things. I'm not giving an excuse to those who oversell, but I am also saying I take some time to learn new skills. And I think some of this is new skill learning across the whole clinical trial ecosystem. There is so much more to cover here. I'm really keen to talk about um, more on this thread that Chunky just set up in terms of what's working and what's not with current delivery. And also back on this topic of M&A, um, is it, is, what's, what's the good news and what's the scary news for buyers and for implementers in this space when there is potential consolidation or roll-ups or other M&A activity on the road ahead? Um, but before we do that, just a quick reminder for folks that may have joined us partway through, you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse or you might still be listening to a replay or uh, to a podcast, the Decentralized Podcast on your favorite platform, wherever you may be, uh, welcome. We do cover different topics each week, and this week we're picking up on the headline-grabbing news in the clinical trial tech space around the Science37 uh, acquisition earlier this week, and speaking more broadly about M&A trends and forecasts uh, in the decentralized trial space. Uh, our guest today, Chunky from the Everest Group. This is a great time for us to open up the room. If you're here with us live, if you have a question, an idea, a perspective on today's topic, feel free to click that hand raising icon, jump up on stage and share your perspective. If you're joining us through a replay, remember that this is the joy of joining us live is the ability to uh, hit that button and interact and be a part of the conversation. I know there's also quite a bit of conversation still happening in the chat. So we'll keep an eye on that and see what's going on over there and bring that into the conversation as well. We do have a guest from the audience, Archana Sa, who's here with us. Archana, come on off mute, introduce yourself for, for folks who haven't had the pleasure and share your thoughts on today's topic. Hi, um, good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, good morning everyone from uh, California. Um, thank you for bringing me to the stage. My question is for Chunky um, in the sense that, you know, then the different conversations that you have with so many different sponsors. I was very curious. I mean, I think it's well known fact that the industry has 
understands and recognizes, as well as the regulatory bodies that recognize the value of these um, <clears throat> decentralized modalities. Um, I'm just curious, what are you hearing from sponsors about doing a systematic analysis for evidence generation and uh, putting out some metrics out there in terms of what were some from even some of the early experiments, the early um, studies that they that they ran. Um, you know, I'm always on the lookout for peer-reviewed publications um, that are out there showcasing uh, some of the lessons learned as well as benefits and opportunities. Um, I, I, I don't see a lot of peer-reviewed publications, so I'm just curious, what are you hearing? Um, is that something that you think pharma is taking seriously and would do that in a very concerted and organized fashion? I would love to hear your thoughts, what you're hearing. Hey, Arjuna, nice to, nice to speak to you again. I, I missed a little part of your, some part of your question, right? So it, if you can just rephrase it for me. that. Sorry, uh, yeah, let me move closer to, I think the Wi-Fi may be bad here where I am at. Um, I was curious to hear your thoughts of what you're hearing from sponsors regarding putting out more publications in peer-reviewed journals or um, publications about what they've observed so far regarding um, the benefits or some of the KPIs reaped from incorporating these DCT modalities. I'm always looking for these uh, evidence out there and uh, um, I, you know, I'm curious uh, what you're hearing, what are the sponsors saying? I mean, they're quick to, to raise expectations, but I'm just curious, um, are they serious about putting out these um, uh, observations or results that they have seen over the past three years in, in some form of uh, publications out there. Got it, understood the question. So it based on my interaction with them, right? I, I think the experiences that they have had so far, I think are significantly different from one another, right? So it, I think in terms of, and again, some of this is my interpretation, uh, I, I think what they're looking for is a little bit more consistency in their own experience before uh, we start to see some of those peer-reviewed journals, right? So it's not something specifically that I've discussed with them, but based on my conversations with them, I think that is what I inferred. Yeah, that's going to take a while. Let's just be real. <laughs> Especially <laughs> if you're doing a one of trial in a specific therapeutic area and looking for the apples to apples comparison. But that said, we know there's some good work getting started by Tufts, DTRAs, collaborating in the background there to try to quantify what's happening across trials using DCT methods, where they're getting used, and what impact is being seen. I would say that's a project that's in its early days, but even that is far away from what you're asking for, Archana, which is the sponsor and investigator publications on methodology and impact. Yeah, yeah that's right, Jane. And, you know, in oncology especially, I, I see a few here and there especially um, in ASCO publications regarding telemedicine use and how that's helping cancer patients uh, 
um, and remote, uh, you know, remote monitoring or remote discussions with patients, uh, reducing some of the patient burden. Um, I've seen a couple of publications, mainly on telemedicine usage, actually, and some uh, a, a sprinkling of, of uh, remote data, patient monitoring using wearables. Um, but I, I was just curious, um, you know, if we can, even if these are small, they, they don't have to be very complex. And even if it is based off of just one study, I think the point I would want to stress is the need of the R is, even if it is just a single study, it's still worth a public to think, um, you know, that that has helped move the needle in, in that, in the right directions. That, that would be my Well, there is thought. an absolute need. You know, we've we've struggled at this with uh, DTRA and other groups uh, to get access to evidence around the impact of decentralized research. Uh, certainly, the DTRA library is trying to uh, gather what's in the public domain and make that centrally accessible wherever it may reside to be more widely accessible. I, I feel like Archana, I'm sure you, me, Jane, Chunky get inbound inquiries all the time from friends out there in industry and other places. Do you have a paper? Is there evidence of X or Y? But on the flip side, people, those same organizations aren't sharing their own experiences. And so they're telling me that they're hungry to get more evidence and they're hungry to see, you know, the experiences of others, but they're not necessarily stepping forward on their own to share what experience and lessons they've learned. And so it leaves us in this, in this funk, in this gratuitous cycle of lack of evidence. Hopefully uh, collaborations like what uh, Tufts is working on with the uh, Center for the Study of Drug Development, hopefully will be a, a seed for that. Um, hopefully, if sponsors can more consistently track this type of data in their CTMS platforms, we'll have an easier way to get aggregated evidence out, just like we do on so many other benchmarking areas and KPIs. Jane? I, I was gonna um, actually flip back to Chunky for a minute. And I know you do a ton of research as you go through your assessment of who's in the field and what's happening. And, and I'm curious in your methodology to assess performance and make your award, um, do your question sets change over the years? And is that driven by changes in what you observe in the market conditions or, if they do change, is that because you see new emerging themes from the folks you're doing the interviews with? And was there anything that came up as you were going through that process last year that was a little bit different? So then is the question that the questions that we get, do, do they change or the questions that we ask them, do they more change? The, more the latter, actually, but I'm interested in both, frankly. Okay, so maybe let me start with the second one. Uh, so the answer is yes, right? The questions that we ask change. In fact, even the scope of the assessment changes from year to year. So we've done three iterations of the DCT peak matrix assessment. And if you look at the scope of all three, you will see incremental changes, right? And that's a result of how the that area is evolving, how sponsors think about it, how that is evolving. So one is, again, what's, how how we define DCT, what we include, what we exclude. Uh, so some of our thinking on it has also changed as we've had done more of these assessments, have had more interactions. Uh, then there are also questions around 
how sponsors are consuming it or how they are sourcing it. So there are trends that we observe from the perspective that when, when we started doing it, we understood that sponsors are looking at uh, providers who are able to provide them everything from the different technology capabilities through services, which could be either through them or partners. So, so we uh, then the next time that we did, uh, right, there is we tried to look at what how that preferences are changing. So I think based on what we hear from sponsors, we come up with certain hypotheses of how the market is evolving. We bake that into our scope, the questions that we ask them. Uh, so for instance, uh, I think after after the second iteration, one of the things that we noticed was, uh, and I think which is now quite uh, out there even on LinkedIn, right, is how sites were underrepresented uh, and how their point of view was not coming forward. So when we did the assessment this time, we made sure that we were gathering specific information on how the different DCT providers are looking to uh, looking to solve for that. So yeah, every year there are incremental changes based on how the industry is evolving, what questions have changed from a sponsor perspective, what things are starting to become more important. So if, from every assessment, uh, so from one assessment to other, there would be significant changes. That's super helpful. And maybe another time we'll talk about the site uh, perspective because that's a hot topic, but not the same as this topic. Definitely. So I'm curious as we're as we're seeing um, as I think we can expect some more M&A activity in this space and that M&A activity could mean companies as we've seen being acquired such as by healthcare or health tech players. It could mean companies that are rolling into CROs. It could mean companies that are rolling into some of the larger tech. Uh, that exist in the clinical trial space, or it could mean what private equity companies love to do, different types of roll-ups. Uh, can we grab a bunch of different assets out there around, say, the DCT space and bring them together under something larger and perhaps more stable and formidable? When we think about these different types of possible futures this year in terms of M&A activity, what do we think the impact might be for those running studies for operators out there? Is it a net positive that this may create more a more stable ecosystem? It may create more integrated solutions out there, or is it a net negative that it could mean disruption, further disruption in terms of delivery or unpredictability for sponsors? Chunky, do you have a, a forecast in mind for what some of these changes might mean for operators out there? Yeah, I think changes also mean uncertainty, right? Because, uh, and, and, and I would say that uncertainty has been there for a while uh, because uh, I, I, I think a lot of sponsors have looked at the stock price for Science 37 and in some of our interactions, I think some sponsors expressed certain concerns and they were wondering how some of the other DCT players are faring, right? Because the only one that was public was Sign 37. So I think there was that this definitely brings uncertainty. Uh, but having said that, right, uh, while I think any acquisition will bring a certain degree of uncertainty, 
it probably also reassures them that uh, that there are buyers out there, right? So I don't think I have a very good answer whether sponsors would look at this as a net positive or a net negative. Uh, but I do think it creates more, or it definitely raises more questions. I think, and Jane, you've probably gone through this, you know, both in your sponsor and in CRO past lives, maybe like I have as well, that I think sponsors get ex get uh, nervous when they see any vendor involved in a transaction. CROs, you know, are a great example that when CROs merge or start to roll together, sponsors are so dependent on them that they get very nervous and anxious around those events. Well, Jane, what, what, what's your sense there? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the reasons there's so much effort on those qualification processes up front for those vendors who sometimes don't know it, it might take six months or more to get through that process. Um, but stability is actually a big factor in decision making in those orgs, which is not always the way that these amazing innovative tech companies think and act right there. Those companies are built to build and drive change quickly. Pharma seeks innovation with stability. That's a, <laughs> it's an interesting quandary. Um, I was gonna call on Gav. Gav has put an interesting question into the chat. So Gav, you can either come up and talk with us or I can try to interpret your question. I'd love it if you came up on stage though. Okay, I'll read the question. It's for Chunky and Craig. Do you think Science 37 would say that part of the issue was FDA regulation versus overvaluation in the DCT space? And I guess that's as a driver of the transaction. That's where I'm not sure I'm interpreting exactly right, Gav. I mean, my my sense uh, that the the driver here was really just a factor of of valuation and being able to grow into that valuation in a reasonable amount of time with the cash on hand. I think that's the limiter for a lot of companies today. Our market doesn't adapt very quickly. It's not very forgiving when it comes to, you know, um, being able to commit to new things quickly. Um, I think the FDA has been very friendly to models like what Science 37 and others have been presenting. I have not, I'm not aware of any, you know, um, hard pushback that those models have received, especially in the context of the hybrid studies they've done, but also in those that have, have been, you know, involving things uh, fully decentralized. And so my, my sense is this is really a story around valuation rather than a story of, um, of over-regulation. In fact, I would argue that the, at this point, the regulatory clarity we've seen from draft guidance documents has been generally favorable for these innovators rather than being you know, overly burdensome. Chunky, do you, do you see uh, otherwise on that topic of regulation versus valuation, what's driving some of these movements? I agree with your point of view, Craig. In all of my interactions with a lot of these DCT providers, 
I've only heard of the uh, I, I've only heard of the regulation and of what FDA is doing as a net positive. Fair yeah, enough. I agree. I think that the trick is that some of our ecosystem um, colleagues are seeking even more guidance, which is not actually what the regulators are likely to offer. So, Kelly, thanks for coming up on stage. Please chime in with your question or comment. <laughs> thanks so much. And hi, Chunky. Nice to see you again. Um, my question is, do you see any lack of capabilities or what capabilities are still needed um, for DCTs or in this space? And do you think that those capabilities will be incorporated through organic growth within the current DCT providers or perhaps through M&A opportunities from outside of our industry? Interesting question. So I, I'm thinking about how best to answer this, right? So and I think the, at least the way we define DCT, we define it in terms of a few core modules and then a certain set of capabilities, right? Uh, now, there are DCT providers who have all of those capabilities, and at the same time, there are also some DCT providers who have some of those capabilities, but not all. And I also see different providers focus on different aspects, right? So you will see uh, some providers who's, uh, again, who are trying to take a more platform-first approach. At the same time, there are others who are more uh, or who have very specialized capabilities in particular areas like people are right so i there are people who are taking different approaches so but to your question around what are some of the capabilities i think that uh, i feel maybe at an industry level which i feel uh, are not as mature i think a lot of it is around how you make uh, how how you design these functionalities so that this creates a superior patient experience. So I, I think there's a lot of focus on patient engagement, but a lot of that focus is driven from how far or how sponsors want to engage with patients rather than thinking it about from a patient perspective. Uh, again, I've interacted with a few companies who are doing a lot of good work in this area, but I think this is one thing which I feel uh, from as a, as a capability perspective, that is one thing that I feel is uh, missing. Uh, and to your question on how they would acquire it, I think uh, particularly the valuations now, I think make it interesting. So, and there are some providers out there which do have funds to spend, right? So uh, I, I think the inorganic route uh, would, I, I think we'll start to see more of it. Uh, I And again, I agree haven't seen as much consolidation in this industry. So I do expect a lot more companies to take the inorganic route in the near future. Uh, so just a little segue moment here. Earlier this morning, we were actually having a conversation in a different DTRA circle. Do we need to start a cross-functional initiative on patient recruitment and engagement in DCTs? And that was a yes. So watch that space. Kelly was part of the conversation. And Chunky, we, I think we all agree there's still opportunities to integrate patient voice and experience in both the design and execution of trials. 
You know, I think that um, while there will continue to be some great edge use cases and, and opportunities for continuing uh, innovation in this space, um, and Jane called out one around recruitment and enrollment. I think we'll see some exciting work around um, enabling sites to use more of their own uh, capabilities, their own technologies and services in DCT. I think we'll we'll see evolution in terms of um, some some health, some existing site networks or institutions that could become future meta sites, so to speak. But I, I really think the uh, the near-term demand in the market is just execution and delivery. And that's a, you know, my call to action and reminder for everyone in this space that um, what, what this market needs is stable delivery of its, of its core. And for those uh, friends out there in tech and services and operations that are in the trenches working to make this work, you know, keep, keep doing it, you know, keep, you know, it's, this is a fine year to be heads down and focused on delivery. Just when you're having experiences around delivery, what's working and what's not, take advantage of spaces like DTRA and others to share and get those experiences out there. But that's how we're gonna get out of, you know, a, a trough in the uh, hype cycle and see continued growth and opportunities for more growth in this space because ultimately, that's what the participants in research need and deserve are these access opportunities that, you know, you, Kelly, and so many others out there are working to deliver on and, and make happen. So, you know, that's my, you know, reinforcement to you to, to keep up what you're doing there, Kelly. Well, thank you, Craig. I'm not going to give up the fight, as are, you know, many of us here on the call. And, and I would just say that I... I 100% agree to that, right? I, I, I think what's going to be the most important this year is how DCT providers execute. I, I, I think that is not coming out of the assessment that we published in uh, December. That's the number one thing that's coming out. The focus 2024 is going to be on execution. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, this has been a, a fabulous conversation. I know there's so much more on people's minds with regards to, you know, uh, both the the story with um, uh, with Science 37 and just M&A activity here in general. Um, Jane, next week we're going to be talking with it looks like some Canadian friends about hybrid DCT model strategies. What's coming up next week? Or did I stump you, Jane? Did I catch you off guard on the craft uh, hybrid DCT model strategy next week? I'm not getting. I'm not getting you, Jane. Okay. Well, coming up next week will be. Oh, there you go. Huh. Okay. Maybe you can hear me. So we have the opportunity to hear from people in the field in Canada about some of the pilots they've been conducting in decentralized and hybrid trials and i think some really key lessons learned on both planning and execution so i'm really super excited they're joining us i am excited and jane i can't wait to hear you break out your canadian accent and make uh make our guests next week feel at home until then uh 
please keep your suggestions for topics coming through. If you'd like to join as a host or co-host in the coming weeks, just let us know. And of course, my thanks to uh, Chunky from the Everest Group, as well as our friends uh, Archana and Kelly for jumping on stage. To all of you who contributed to a robust conversation going in, on in the chat, uh, thank you as well. We'll look forward to seeing and hearing your voices next week. Thanks, everybody.